0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So I want to talk this morning about Christ and culture, and what it means to live in terms of the Lordship of Christ, and what the relationship is between... Thank you, Samuel. uh, What the relationship is between uh, Christians and the, the cultural task. In other words, uh, <clears throat> what's the point in coming on something like this? Why not just turn up to some uh, uh, other uh, legal or vocational training program? Why come to something like the, the CLI? Why would that be significant? Why would that be important? I want to begin by reading from the book of Ephesians. Uh, so if you have a Bible or you have a screen that might have a Bible on it, as most people seem to these days... And by the way, if you read things off a screen, apparently recent studies show that you remember less. So a Bible is still a good idea. <clears throat> Your brain has to work that much harder to filter the light, see. Ephesians chapter one and uh, reading verses 15 through 23. And Paul writes. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is just one of the many important passages in the New Testament about the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ over all things. Now, the basic uh, presupposition or assumption of Scripture is that this includes every area of life. That means Jesus Christ is Lord over the legal sphere, over the medical sphere, over every name, in every age, Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean? What did it mean for the early church? Well, in the second century... uh, uh, A.D. Bishop Ignatius of Antioch in Syria was hauled across Asia Minor where he was torn apart by beasts at Rome for the entertainment of a mob. That was the uh, atypical experience of many of the bishops and leaders of the church in the early centuries. Polycarp, Bishop of, of Smyrna, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, was arrested and burned to death in uh, AD 156. And uh, a relative of the magistrate who arrested uh, Polycarp was a Christian, and he tried to persuade Polycarp to save himself. And to save himself, all he had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. He just had to acknowledge before the imperial authority that Caesar was Lord. Polycarp refused to do so, and he perished in the flames. So one of the questions that this raises for us when we look at the early church's confession of the Lordship of Jesus is why would they make such a big deal of so trivial a sounding matter as saying, uh, Caesar is Lord. Why not just say it, get it over with, and get on with your life, get on with your work. Well, the church historian Roland Bainton writes, he says this, the Christians added to the Jewish formulation, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, The further confession, Christ is Lord. Not only the God of heaven and earth, but a malefactor crucified by the government of Rome was declared to have an authority exceeding that of the emperor of Rome. The cult of Christ and the cult of Caesar were incompatible, end quote. That's the church historian Roland Bainton. Now that uh, statement needs to be absorbed in terms of its significance. And it actually helps us understand the present cultural crisis in the West. If we want to understand actually in part how to handle our current situation. Now there may be those of you who think, well I'm 18, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm 21. What cultural situation? Uh, We actually tend to accept what we grow up with. We grow up in the, uh, the, the context of our family, our culture, our country. And very often we just accept it. And without some historical context, we actually are unaware of what we've lost. We're actually unaware of where we are unless we have some historical context to understand our cultural moment. And actually, if we go back to the religious policy of antiquity in Rome and the persecution of the church, we understand more effectively our own situation today. The Roman emperor considered the military victories of Rome, the victory of the Roman gods over the gods of these other nations. And what the implication of this was, was that the warfare of peoples was actually a warfare between their gods. So you literally had a cult wars. You heard about the culture wars. We talk about the culture wars in our our country. We talk about the culture wars in the media and so forth, and everybody's engaged in some form of culture, whether they like it or not, in every vocation. But the culture wars, quite literally for Imperial Rome, were the wars of the cults. And so they would carry off the gods of the defeated peoples and uh, make them lesser gods in their own pantheon of gods. So there was a, um, a cult war, if you like, in the military conflicts of antiquity. Now, this didn't mean that other religions weren't tolerated. In the polytheism of, of Rome, uh, all religions were tolerated in the lands of their origin. So they would conquer a people, and those people were allowed to continue practicing their religions. They could continue worshipping their, in, in their various cults as long as they recognized the ultimate authority of Caesar and they didn't contravene Roman law. Uh, Rome felt and believed that the, the, the problem with allowing everybody to have all their local laws uh, would be that there wouldn't be enough glue for the empire. There had to be a universal law structure, Roman law, in order to provide a glue for the empire, but everybody could worship whichever gods they liked. They didn't want to interfere. This was the pattern of the Persians and the Babylonians. Uh, this was a, a good way of building a, an empire. So the central requirement of Rome uh, was that the object of ultimate allegiance and worship was the emperor himself, and this was uh, manifest in the emperor cult. The emperor was the source of all sovereignty, the ultimate source of allegiance. And that would then be the glue for the social order, whilst people practiced their various religions. People could be licensed to, to practice their religion, uh, but they had to recognize the ultimate authority of uh, the emperor. In uh, reading some of the early documents, Pliny, the proconsul in Bithynia, writes a letter to the emperor Trajan in the year 112 AD, uh, where he's writing uh, asking a question about the Christians. He's asking whether he should just continue executing them. And this is what he says. The sole offense for which the Christians were put to death was their refusal to worship the emperor. The test is whether the accused refuses to curse Christ and worship the emperor. So the state uh, personified in the emperor was actually the uh, subject, the source of worship, the center of worship. And it was required of all Roman citizens. If you refused to sacrifice to the emperor's genius, it was treason. So this was the context of the early church. You say, well, what on earth does that have to do with us on our cultural moment today? We're not being uh, executed. Uh, we're not being uh, hauled off into the Roman arena. Let's remind ourselves though, that in other parts of the world today, uh, and if we're involved in law in particular, we're involved in seeking to protect and guard our freedoms. There are people who don't have the freedom to practice the faith openly places like china and north korea much of the communist world and much of the islamic world christians are murdered executed for their faith we've got certain privileges here that uh, at the present time that we shouldn't take for granted and freedom always has to be fought for it has to be guarded it has to be protected it can't be taken for granted whilst we're not being tossed to wild beasts that's true we are increasingly under an official doctrine of state tolerance An official doctrine of tolerance, Uh, for example, in the United States right now, there there is this uh, move towards changing the idea of freedom of religion to freedom of worship, which would actually conform much more closely to the Roman uh, model. Uh, There's this resistance to the idea of of the open practice of religion, because religion has public implications, whereas worship, well, you can just do that privately. This is the idea. So we're under this... uh, official state doctrine of tolerance in the name of equality and justice which is increasingly determined to censor in public and increasingly the private sphere uh the gospel uh dr masson will be talking about education it's particularly pronounced there but the preaching of the gospel the moral standards of scripture the prayers of the citizens in the schools and corridors of power as well as free speech that challenges the ideology of our time in any way uh This doctrine of tolerance is increasingly censoring the church, censoring Christians from speaking. There is a cultural shift uh, that has taken place due to a revived, I'm going to call it a cult, culture, a revived culture of humanism or of paganism, expressing itself presently largely as cultural Marxism. Uh, some of these thoughts will be familiar to you. Sociologically, this means that the Christian faith is portrayed as uh, regressive, as patriarchal, as draconian, as a kind of oppression which serves the self-interest of white, male, wealthy, middle-class misogynists, using the private family and Christian morality as a weapon to promote capitalism and class domination. This is a, this is a, a dominant idea if you actually... Uh, and look on the website of the Toronto District School Board. Uh, you will see that <clears throat> these ideas are being taught to our children. That uh, well, what somebody like me represents is the is the enemy of the state today. There's nothing new, though, about this current strategy. Uh, it's true that right now uh, I'm not in prison as a Christian, although in Europe. Uh, Christians have been arrested for preaching the gospel openly. Uh, uh, Pastors have been threatened with prison. In fact, I think briefly, in Sweden, didn't a Pentecostal pastor serve prison time? I told the story. Yeah, well, you've already heard it. So so these things are, this creep, this cultural creep, is beginning to manifest itself in the courts. Uh, as uh, it is inescapable that it will do so. There's nothing new, though, about this strategy of official uh, toleration, um, which actually has the uh, central agenda of opposing Christianity by a a strategy other than violence. So just because we're not being um, tossed into the arena or thrown into prison or executed, doesn't mean that Christianity is being... Uh, welcomed and tolerated. There's strategic propaganda. In 261 AD, Gileanus uh, issued what was called the Edict of Toleration in the Roman Empire. This is while the church was being persecuted. He published the Edict of Toleration. And the purpose of it wasn't to favor Christianity, it was to oppose it. By a means other than murder, by targeted strategic propaganda. He thought the best thing to do, I'm not winning the war by throwing these Christians into prison. What we need to do is be more uh, strategic about this and actually engage Christianity in the field of ideas. As it turned out, that was just as poor an idea as throwing them into prison. Sometimes in our time the propaganda is framed in political terms, sometimes it's sociological, sometimes it's there in the education system, and uh, we are seeing some resistance to it at the moment. In um, March 2010 there was a debate in the Senate of the Canadian Parliament, uh, it took place around a motion put forward by Senator Doug Finlay uh, concerning the erosion of freedom of speech in which he warned fellow senators about the effect of the... Uh, what he was calling the, the freeze, if you like, on freedom of speech through the Human Rights Commission. So there is some uh, resistance to it, although the Walcott decision at the Supreme Court um, has not helped the issue uh, of uh, f- true freedom of speech in Canada uh, in these last months. But we're seeing these examples of censorship happening all around us. The cancelling of a speaking event for Ann Coulter, you remember that, in uh, in Ottawa, Uh, uh, somebody getting a ticket for praying in a public building, um, the banning of pro-life groups and debate on certain university campuses, fines, gag orders, sensitivity training for Christian groups and for Christian clergy and so on and so forth. And uh, the cases in terms of the Human Rights Commissions are always uh, targeted against Christians or the odd Jewish social conservative. So we are in a time in which this uh, state doctrine of tolerance is all around us and it is not something that is in favor of but rather with the goal of marginalizing the Christian faith. With respect to um, freedom of speech and speech that might cause offense, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation and so on and so forth, uh, any material that is seen as offensive uh, in In terms of addressing those subject areas, it's interesting that even our Jubilee magazine, right now in Ontario, written material is still um, uh, safe, unless it's on a a billboard, but um, we had to take counsel about uh, uh, what we could actually say in our Jubilee journal. How, How much risk are we being exposed to by writing about sexual ethics, writing about gender? What are the possible implications for the EICC? Should somebody be offended... Proof of intent is not required. Truth is not a defence. In our courts, in our system, the truth of what you are saying, or what your what your intention is in communicating it, is not a defence. How can Christian evangelism, in the long term, not fall foul of this doctrine of toleration? What is Christian evangelism? Christian evangelism is the preaching of the gospel and the calling people to repentance. From sin and idolatry, and all that goes with it, to accept the lordship and salvation of Jesus Christ. So, how can I call sinners to repentance and to the Lord? Because by definition, I'm saying something, I'm I'm criticizing in a way that could be deemed offensive by calling somebody to repentance uh, from dead works and sin, from a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God to Christ. Christian evangelism could very easily and very quickly fall foul of this legislation. In fact, it does. It's just a question of when uh, one of these commissions is going to have the courage or the temerity to take on the Christian pastor or the freedom of the Christian pulpit. So you can hear lots about those things from people more informed than me. What is the calling of the Christian in the midst of all of this? Well, the first thing is you and I can't distance ourselves or hide From this challenge in your vocation, whether it's law or another vocation. Uh, If we are going to think in biblical uh, categories and live as faithful Christians, we have to recognize that Christ is over and transcends culture as creator, redeemer, and king. And if you're a Christian, you're involved whether you like it or not. There's no escape from the cultural challenge Of being a Christian. If we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be faithful Christians, we can't escape it. We have to face it. We have to recognize that Christ does claim to transcend culture as creator, redeemer, and king. All things have been made subject to him. That's what Ephesians says. Every name that is named, every power, every dominion in this age and in the age to come. That's a categorical statement in Scripture. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God of Polycarp is still the God of Greg and Samuel. I'm picking on them because I know their names are at my church. Okay, So he's the same God. He's the same Christ. Christ still has the same expectations of us. The Apostle Paul writes, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever and his purpose is the reconciling of all things to himself through his covenant people in faithfulness to the gospel so that's the first thing the second thing is that the weapons that we fight with are different from the world's weapons we're not dependent upon uh being loud-mouthed uh activists uh, trying to uh, topple laws and manipulate people through uh and uh, a malignant agenda, manipulating others. No, our, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, the scripture says, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the strongholds that we're facing as Christians in the legal sphere, in the medical sphere, I was just speaking to uh, physicians and surgeons in Edmonton this past uh, weekend. They're heavily engaged in advocacy on the euthanasia issue right now, which, as you know, has come up in in BC. Uh, Whatever field or vocation you are in, we are confronting arguments and lofty opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. And in the conflict, we have the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's not about (coughs) sending us out powerless. We have a power from beyond history, we're told, in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, to wage this spiritual war, we have to be faithful in the application of God's word to our lives so that we will see the gospel transform us first, our families, our communities, and thereby our culture. I think you've been uh, given a, a book by John Warwick Montgomery uh, on the law. Is that correct? Is that one of the giveaways this week? Yes. And in there, John War- uh, uh, Warwick Montgomery writes, he says, How tragic if we compartmentalize our lives, restricting biblical understanding to local church activities and personal relationships never recognising that every substantive aspect of our legal discipline can and should be seen in the light of Christ. That's on page one of uh, law and gospel there. This is critical that we are applying God's word into the legal discipline or whatever discipline we are in, so that we are bringing Christ's light and life to bear Uh, in every area of life. Now if we don't do that we will never be able to comprehend why a Christian bishop would not save his life by saying Caesar is Lord. You see these people the early church and the only reason that the Roman Empire in the end uh, was so invaded by the gospel was because there were Christians who were willing to say Jesus is Lord. And I'm not compromising I'm not going to back down I'm going to stand by this confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. We will never be able to comprehend that if we ourselves are not committed to the lordship of Jesus. And actually, we will be irrelevant to the crisis of our time if we cannot confess the lordship of Christ. David Klinghoffer, the Jewish scholar, says that when a culture makes a turn away from God, and away from his law, like our own, he says this, we have inevitably, by definition, turned toward idolatry. The Bible recognizes only these two states of existence. You have either cast your lot with God or with the idols. The greatest codifier of biblical law, Mamonides, put the idea in stark terms. All who affirm idolatry reject the whole of God's teaching, all the prophets and that which was commanded to the prophets from Adam till the end of the world. So both liberal religion and secularism deny traditional norms of behaviour as rooted in the Bible. Since both, rather, liberal religion and secularism deny traditional norms of behaviour as rooted in the Bible, both equally represent a turn toward paganism. End quote. So ultimately, the question of culture making is a question of lordship. Is Jesus Christ Lord? The choice is between idolatry, false worship, and true worship. Is Jesus Christ Lord or is some other God Lord? And actually the character of our society, the character of our culture, the character of our medicine, the character of our law, the character of our economics is actually determined by the answer to that question. Well, I've used the term culture a few times. What is it? Most of the time we use that and we assume we know what we're talking about until somebody says, well, define culture for me. So let's just have think about that for a moment. What is culture? If we're, if our calling is to impact culture as Christians in terms of the Lordship of Christ, what is culture? Well, the historian Jacques Barzun was acutely aware of the difficulty with this term when he, he says this. He says, culture, what a word, up to a few years ago, it meant two or three related things, easy to grasp and keep apart. Now it's a piece of all-purpose jargon that covers a hodgepodge of everything, of overlapping things. How did a simple metaphor for agriculture lose its authority and get burdened down with meanings for which there are other good words? So we have this kind of bewildering array, in which, uh, array of things where culture is applied uh, today. It's very overused. We speak of... Uh, urban culture, subculture, business culture, organizational culture, arts culture, gay culture, multiculturalism, on and on and on and on. And then we think, well, what actually are we talking about? So it's interesting, the primary definition of the word culture, the original meaning of the word culture, is derived from cultivation. This is really helpful for us in terms of understanding how our faith applies, even in terms of how the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God. The original term is cultivation. Cultivation and uh, the, the root word in Latin is colere, uh, and it's a term which refers to I'm going to use the whiteboard, never mind uh... no, I'll do it in my next session because they, they won't be able to see it for now, it's okay um, we derive the, t- the term from colere, and it literally means to till the ground in order to grow things tilling the ground in order to grow things So, if you look at an older dictionary, sometimes actually to get the original meanings of words, you have to go to an old dictionary uh, because so many words have kind of shifted in their meaning. But if you pick up an older dictionary, you will find that the noun culture is described as a state of being cultivated and a type of civilization. A state of being cultivated and a type of civilization. Uh, in other words, the state of being is something that's cultivated in individuals. We, 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 we till people's lives, morally and intellectually, so that they become something. A state of being is cultivated in an indiv- individual, and from this comes a civilization. You create a type of civilization based on the tilling that goes on in people's lives, so traditionally, an educated, mature, and civilized person... My grandparents would speak of an educated and civilized individual as cultured. Cultured. Which meant that they had been well brought up. Uh, you know, They had good manners. They had good breeding. They had a good education. They were a cultured individual. So a person's state of being is actually a profoundly religious uh, question... In fact, we retain the religious connotation of culture in the term cult. We still use it. We talk about the cults because it's, uh, uh, when you talk about somebody's state of being, what they actually are, you're talking about a religious belief, uh, uh, essentially a religious question. In fact, I think the best definition and easiest definition to remember of culture is that culture is religion externalized. Write that down. I think it was Henry Van Till religion externalized or applied beliefs culture is religion externalized or applied beliefs if you go to uh, my parents worked in um, Pakistan for uh, 15 years Um, 98% Islamic what do you experience in Pakistan if you go to Pakistan you experience Islamic culture Islamic law Islamic education, Islamic customs, Islamic culture. Go to Saudi Arabia, you experience the same thing. Uh, if you go to India today, there's a, a mixture of things uh, always has been in India, but particularly today. But in general, the Hindu culture still dominates. And underlying cultural assumptions in India are, uh, is Hindu mythology. And part and parcel of that is the caste system. Uh, and the, the, na- the very names that people have, the very names that people carry, indicate something of their caste. What when you come to the West today? Well, it used to be that you encountered Christian culture. Uh, uh, if you go to England, for example, how many of you have been to England? A handful of you. If you've not been to England, put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. <laughs> um, if you go to England, every town or village... Uh, has a church at the centre of it. It's the way the whole country was designed and built. The most expensive building, the best-looking building, in every town and village, built right at the centre, to represent the centre of cultural life, was a church. The parish church. You go to um, uh, many North American cities today, there are still lots and lots of churches in key places, but usually the most expensive buildings are the government buildings now, right? State buildings. And the churches are closing. And the, and the older church buildings are uh, crumbling. It says something about our culture. What you witness now in the West is uh, humanistic culture with remnants of a Christian culture. Remnants of it in our language, literature and beliefs and so on. But civilizational cultures rise and fall as beliefs take specific shape. And then they collapse and fail under various stresses and strains. And what we've seen in the West over the past, well, it's been progressive since the Enlightenment, but especially since the Second World War, has been the capture of the West sociologically, intellectually, uh, by humanism, expressing itself as uh, philosophical multiculturalism, sociologically as political correctness. We're seeing the encroachment of an opportunistic Islam as well throughout Europe and in North America. And uh, we're seeing the signs of stress, strain, decay and collapse of uh, Western civilization, even in our economies, in our money. Uh, Europe uh, right now, while it would be a brave person who would predict the survival of the European Union for the next 25 years. So in some respects we are growing up, or you are growing up, nearly 40 now, uh, in a, a, a dying age in an age of decay and decline I was just listening on the radio uh, coming here yesterday that um, uh, the boomer generation that's our parents generation uh, are still really bankrolling our generation many of us are living out of our parents homes Uh, they're funding our car purchases our major purchases they're funding our education it's tough times to get a job Some of you have been telling me, even this week, how difficult it is to find work. These are difficult times. So the question becomes, if that's what culture is, well, I think it's self-evident, can a culture be neutral? Can a culture be neutral? Canada likes to pretend it can. Uh, But it seems, actually, that this is impossible. In fact, it is impossible for any social order to be neutral. To be neutral, neuter... Neuter means to be neither one thing nor another. Neither one thing nor another. Every civilization has been, is, and will be inescapably committed through the spheres and institutions of the family, of the academy, of law, art, government, to a religious consensus. That might be humanistic, it might be Islamic, it might be Hindu, it might be Christian, but there is no such thing as a prejudice-free space. Christians are finding that out now. Right? There's no such thing as a prejudice free space for the equal toleration of all views. That is a myth. Even in the Baha'i faith, which uh, pr- professes to accept all things, uh, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ is rejected, which is the basic tenet of the Christian faith. Right? So you cannot have any religious or social order that is neutral. It is a myth used to facilitate the introduction of a new intolerance. An English doctor writing under the pseudonym of Theodore Dalrymple, who is a superb social commentator, uh, he illustrates this very well when he said this To overturn a prejudice is not to destroy prejudice as such, it is rather to inculcate another prejudice. He gives an example. When George Bernard Shaw characterised marriage as a legalised form of prostitution, he was not so much demanding justice and equality for women as he was encouraging the dissolution, even as an ideal, of permanent bonds between a man and a woman. Sorry, that's my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, just turn it over on its face, quickly. That's it. My apologies. <clears throat> that's, probably, that's probably the permanent bond that I have phoning me uh, to see how I'm getting on. Yeah. Uh, he says, unfortunately, mass bastardy is not liberating for women. So, if you remove one prejudice, the Christian concept of marriage, for example, it doesn't lead to a neutral approach to marriage. What it leads to is a considered prejudice against the Christian conception of the family. So the new cultural norm becomes something other than the Christian concept of the family. Simply put, the idea that you can cultivate a prejudice-free civilization without value commitments is a lie and a precursor to the marginalization of Christianity. And that's, we're, li- we're living through the proof of that today. And it's logical. It's not that that's illogical. It's completely logical. No civilization can tolerate dissent beyond a certain point. Otherwise, it commits social suicide. You can tolerate dissent to a certain point, but you cannot tolerate dissent beyond that point. That is why we have laws against treason. It was until 1998 that in Canada, mutiny and treason were still punishable by the maximum penalty of death. Because there's this idea that you can only tolerate dissent to a certain degree, even in a democratic environment, beyond which you have to isolate, punish... Uh, The treasonous. Otherwise the social order will collapse. This is why, whilst we must strongly condemn it and disapprove of it, conversion to Christianity is illegal in many parts of India today. It's illegal in many Islamic states. It's why a free church is illegal in China and North Korea. It's why there's an underground church in China. Because they realize that the growth and spread of Christianity would spell the end of their power. It would end their civilization as they've known it, or their political ideology, or their religious ideology as they have known it. So it is marginalized. That's the nature of how civilizations and social orders work. And what we're seeing right now, of course, is um, whilst it's, quite negative in the West in terms of what we see happening to um, the Christian faith in parts of Africa today parts of Asia, Latin America we're seeing the explosion of the Christian church in fact we're seeing whole new Christian cultures emerge where Western missionaries went a couple of hundred years ago now coming back to correct the Western church for their idolatry and, and rebellion against God And we should thank God for that, that we have missionaries from these parts of the world. It's like the children coming back to correct their parents. And in many respects, the rising generation in the church here has to correct our parents. That's the reality of the situation. As you, as coming up now in the life of the church, as the new generation of leaders in the church, you have to be ready to correct our parents' generation. They gave us the sexual revolution. They gave us the social revolution. Uh, They were the products of the silent generation. But we have to be prepared and ready, respectfully, to correct the older generation for their departures from the word of God if the church is going to go forward in this country. That's a digression, but it's an important one. So cult and culture are inescapably linked. As the Christian faith prospers in other parts of the world, Christian cultures are emerging. Despite the fact that Western governments are trying to manipulate and control those emerging Christian countries, take Uganda, for example, and the threats being made by Western governments to African nations that will not accept the homosexual agenda. We're going to pull your aid, we're going to pull funding, and so on and so forth. And credit to some of these African governments, they're saying, keep your funding. And this is in a time when there is supposedly a great hostility to past Western colonialism and imperialism and taking Christianity to these other places. We're now trying to impose, through international organizations and treaties, Western humanism on the rest of the world. It's hypocrisy. The whole thing is hypocritical. So the Roman imperial cult looked at the church and the gospel and the claims of christians concerning the lordship of christ and they were not uh, stupid about what they represented they didn't think religion and politics were separate <laughs> they didn't believe that they knew that was nonsense they didn't uh, they didn't see the claims of the christians as religious over here but not secular over here so they could be safely ignored limited to a sacred realm. So, well, that's just the sacred, so we don't need to worry about their claims about Jesus Christ. That won't affect the public sphere. The Roman Emperor and Senate didn't pretend like most Christians today that religion and politics are unrelated matters. Caesar was Lord. They believed in the saving state, the priestly function of the state. The state was Messiah. In fact, in Acts 4.12, we read Peter's public rebuttal of Augustus Caesar Acts 4.12 reads there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus Augustus Caesar had previously published the statement for there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved in the name of Caesar did you know that? Probably not. That's why you're here. That's why Peter That's why Peter stood up in Acts, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. That was a public rebuttal of the claims of Caesar. The Roman Empire recognized it. They weren't stupid. In fact, Paul challenges directly in Philippians the priestly state. This is what he says. Therefore, about Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kurios in the Greek. So they called the Caesars. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the pagan world recognized the audacity of this claim. They saw it as such. And the church not only recognized Christ's lordship. What did the church say? The church said. The early church said. We're his ambassadors. So they said. There's a new emperor on the throne of the entire universe. And we. Are his ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is. An ambassador represents. A sovereign. A sovereign nation. And. And. And ambassadors usually have an embassy the church was seen as God's embassy do you know why the, I don't want to digress too much here because of time But you know what, do you know why the church historically does not pay tax the church still to the present much to the chagrin of many does not pay property taxes although they're trying to tax new church buildings now saying well which bit do you use for worship that's true because I've been through this process with the, with the, with the, with the city Right, if you, the bit you use for singing in, that's tax-free. But if you've got a school or anything else or, as part of your church, they're now trying to tax it. While well, the church historically enjoyed tax-free status, because you can't tax a foreign embassy, it's sovereign territory. You attack an embassy, you attack that sovereign nation. The church enjoyed independence; it enjoyed freedom from taxation. It's God's embassy. And the church said, we are his ambassadors. Now, they didn't say we don't have to obey the law. They were the best citizens. Christians were the best citizens. They did pay their taxes. They obeyed the government, where they didn't contravene the law of God. But they said, we represent a higher authority and a a higher emperor. And the pagan establishment saw this as a threat, and they were right to do so. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Philippines, at the very end, in his greeting that he writes to the Philippian church, he says this, easily missed. All the saints greet you. Don't forget, this is the first century. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Philippians 4, 22. He's writing from Rome to Philippi. And he's sending greetings to the church in Philippi from the church in Rome and already the household of Caesar himself has been invaded by the gospel. All the saints greet you. Now we don't know who they were. Caesar's household had many servants, high officials. We don't know, we're not told. But Caesar's household was already invaded by the gospel. A new lord, a new priest, a new king. The Christ of Psalm 2 was being recognized amongst the officials of rome and when constantine finally came to power in the colossal emergence of the christian faith throughout the empire he eventually ended the bloodletting of the roman arena he reformed the law in a generally more christian direction he, he had churches built funded christian hospitals poverty relief and so on the arena was rome the arena was the place of sacrifice the arena was the place of atonement and so one of the most important steps in the abolition of paganism in the Greco-Roman world was the abolition of the arena. That's not to say that Constantine was a, uh, was a consistent Bible-believing Christian, but he was not the boogeyman that many people make him out to be uh, today. And he did introduce the t- true toleration of the church, the true toleration of Christianity. So applied biblical faith inescapably transforms those who embrace it and are influenced by it, and this has far-reaching consequences. If you, if you believe the gospel, and we're Christians who do, and we believe the word of God, it's going to have an implication for your family, your marriage, your vocation, whether it be in law or art, in politics, in the state, in law, etc., etc., and therefore culture. And when there's been counter-revolutions against Christianity, it has of necessity marginalized it. Take the French Revolution, for example. Robespierre and his... Uh, French revolutionaries they couldn't tolerate the free church they set up a statue of reason at Notre Dame and they went ahead and murdered thousands of people in the name of a religion based on reason you look at the thousands that were murdered by Hitler and Stalin or Mussolini none of whom could tolerate the claims of an independent Christian church millions of people Uh, the the soviets the communist regime set out to systematically destroy the church and in their minds they had to well what's happening today in the same spirit though not to the same extent we've got this sort of neo-marxist thought police of the politically correct brigade and the new atheists and they're out to asset strip christians they're out to silence christians i 'm shifting my house into uh, the title of my house into the name purely of my wife, so that I own nothing to make sure that if they come after me because i 've said something somewhere that somebody 's offended by they 're not going to take my house away we 're seeing this around the world around the western world where where people are being persecuted we 've mentioned this, and this has been going on for a long time this isn 't new. The hostility amongst the intellectual elite to the Christian faith is not something that just Period in the last 10 years. It's been going on for a very, very long time in Western culture. The uh, Bloomsbury novelist Virginia Woolf, for example, in a letter in 1928 to her sister, is very telling in terms of how early 20th century intellectuals were perceiving the Christian faith. She wrote a letter to her sister about the conversion of T.S. Eliot, who was a much better writer than her, actually, uh, to his, uh, concerning his conversion to Christianity. This is what she says. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with poor dear Tom Elliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become an Anglo-Catholic, believes in God and immortality, and goes to church. I was really shocked. A corpse would seem to me more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. And These were the kind of ideas that have been uh, shaping the Western University now for some time. Interestingly, what was obscene to Virginia Woolf was the very thing that gave her the freedom to express that she thought it was obscene. You've only had freedom of conscience and freedom of speech flourish in Christian-dominated lands. That's not to say there haven't been times of revolution, times of church-state conflict, usually over the issue of freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. The English Revolution was about that. But in societies dominated by the Christian faith, people have been granted the greatest degree of liberty, greatest degree of liberty as individuals within but the bounds of the law to express dissent or non-violent dissent uh, to the dominant uh, religious consensus. And that freedom is disappearing fast. I would strongly recommend to you, if you're in law here, the Harvard Scholar's uh, work, Harold J. Berman's study, Law and Revolution, in two volumes, in which he documents, ex- almost in, in encyclopedic fashion, the demise of the Western uh, legal tradition, uh, since uh, World War II in particular. Uh, but he does a very interesting study of uh, pre-Reformation and post-Reformation law And the transformation of culture in a Christian direction and then the revolution against it. The critical point then that I'm uh, seeking to make here is that uh, there are no neutral cultures. There's no such thing as a neutral culture. A society might be full of competing claims. But it's impossible for any social order to be neither one thing nor another. That is somebody's morality is going to be legislated. Somebody's idea of beauty is going to be idealized in art. Somebody's vision of uh, education is going to be implemented in the school. Somebody's philosophy of education will be implemented in the university. The Reformed theologian John Frame puts it this way. He says, people make things because they already have a plan in view, a purpose, a goal, an ideal. The ideal comes first. Then making things. First the norm, then the cultivation, the culture. So there's a norm, an ideal, a religious ideal that's established, and then it is fleshed out. Now, all of this began a very, very long time ago it, with the fall of man. So we're not dealing with anything new. Uh, don't be scared. You know, we shouldn't fret. We shouldn't make, we're told, don't be anxious about evildoers. The Bible tells us that. Why? Because there isn't actually anything original or new, essentially, in the rebellion of our age. We face rebel cultures in every age. Adam and Eve in the Garden of God... Were both rationalist and irrationalist, modern and postmodern, in their response to temptation. Why? Well, they were irrationalist in rejecting the authority of God's word and attempting to reason in terms of neutral, ungoverned reality. They thought that, you know, well, God's got a hypothesis here, Satan's hypothesis is here, who's right? We'll decide. You think about that. They'd already set themselves up as God because they said there's two hypotheses here and we'll evaluate. Which one's right? From a neutral perspective. They were rationalist in thinking they could construct and define reality and truth for themselves. And so the Western world has tended to move, flip-flop between irrationalism and rationalism in terms of this first temptation. You will be as gods. The problem is not history then, the problem is sin. As John Frame says, culture is bad today, but Sodom and Gomorrah were probably not any better (laughs) Nor were Tyre and Sidon, Nineveh, Babylon, Rome, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and so on. So we face these rebel cultures in every age. But our task, our calling in this context, is to obey God. And the Bible calls this the cultural, actually theologians have called this the cultural mandate. The Bible speaks of the dominion that God's people are given in the earth to turn creation into a culture. It was our first task. Even before the fall, culture, a creation, was to be turned into a culture. God didn't place our first parents in the earth and say, right, put your feet up, I'll do the gardening. He said, you're to cultivate the earth, you're to multiply, you're to build families, you're to rule and subdue and to turn my creation into culture, to bring out the potential of everything that I've placed in the world and turn creation into culture. So the Apostle Paul tells us Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And wherever we preach the gospel and are faithful to our calling as Christians, the culture of Christ will actually flourish around us. So if we affirm and and live and teach, the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ it will be inescapable that the culture of Christ created by the gospel will flourish around us. Individuals are converted. Individuals and then families come to know the Lord. Families come to know the Lord and then communities come to faith in Christ. Towns, whole towns and villages can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and before you know it towns and villages become Provinces, provinces, nations. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.